All right, this morning, um, you guys are probably, you're probably similar. I'm not alone in this. You know, we, we, we make lists of things for Christmas. We've got our Christmas list going on. And, and now after Christmas, my list transitions into the New Year list. All right, so I've got some, got some things on my agenda item that I want to get to. Right? We're starting a new year. It's a chance to, to get off on a good foot in some categories that, that matter to me. Uh, it's a chance for me to sort of clean up some things that have just been piling up and piling up and piling up. I need to clean that stuff out, throw that stuff away, get a fresh start in these categories. So that's what 2013, 2014 gives us an opportunity to do, to, to visit some places in our lives that I, I guess I'd use the word need to be fixed, Right? Maybe, maybe your marriage needs to be fixed. Not terrible, but just, it's got some things in it. Maybe your spiritual devotions to God need to be fixed. I just, I, my time with God is just, it's not what it needs to be. My attendance and gathering with God's people, it's not what it needs to be. It's that there's some things need to be fixed. And I, and I think, quite honestly, given the pace of our lives and the fact that most of us today are trying to do too much, I think there's there's probably more things in this transitional year needing to be fixed than perhaps ever in our lives. The more you try to do, the, the less you do well. So a bunch of things get in disrepair. And so I've, just, I've been having something just sitting on my heart for a while that, that we're going to start a little series this morning, take a break from the book of Acts. We will be coming back to that. Uh, but I just, I just want the Lord to have access to us. So this is a word I just have felt directed to build into the church. And we're going to start that this morning. I'm going to call the, the series. I'm, it's always scary for me to title something in the beginning because it takes shape as we move along. But I'm going to start off calling this thing, fixing your happiness by fixing your gaze. Fixing your happiness by fixing your gaze. And this morning's message is about recovering from happiness bankruptcy. How do you, how do you change the happiness factor in your life. If you're feeling a little, little bankrupt in that category, how, how do you change that? Right, some of you guys will remember, if you're one of those business guys who likes to read business books, or even if you're not in this category, you'll remember a guy's name, Lee Iacocca. Right? Lee Iacocca is one of the most famous guys who ever got famous for business. He was a business executive with Chrysler. Chrysler brought him in in the midst of uh, some catastrophic times in the car world for Chrysler. You know, they were one of the big three, still are one of the big three automakers in America, but they were one of the giant corporations of America. And they got into the 70s and just began to go downhill. And their, their cars became just out of touch, boring vehicles. People didn't want to buy them. They had a bad reputation for repairs. People didn't, you know, it was a, it was a risky thing to own a Chrysler. And so no one wanted to buy these cars. And then there were bad business practices that were taking place. The corporation was spread out too thin. There were things that weren't profitable that were going on. There was poor leadership. I mean, at one point, this company that owned about $6 billion in assets. Now, that's, that doesn't sound like a big number to us anymore. But back in the 70s, that's a big number. $6 billion in assets. At one point in the late 70s, they had $1 million in the bank. Can you imagine operating a $6 billion company on a million dollars in the bank? Right? One writer described the company in this crisis moment and said, In July 1979, John Ricardo, the then Chrysler chairman, went public with the depth of Chrysler's difficulties, admitting that Chrysler was bleeding red ink. Second quarter losses reached $207 million. As summer turned to fall, the news from Chrysler was, was bleak. Chrysler's 1979... $1.2 billion loss was the largest recorded in U.S. corporate history. By the end of 1979, the company was teetering on the brink of bankruptcy. Chrysler owed $4 billion, nearly 10% of all U.S. corporate debt. So it was a bad situation that Mr. Lee Iacocca gets invited into to try and turn this around. And if you follow the story, and you, the reason why you know who Lee Iacocca is is because he did turn the company around and did some amazing things. They went from a $1.2 billion loss in 79 to $925 million profit in 1983. So it was a pretty quick transition. 
But if, if you're in this depleted, not doing well status and you want to you turn things around, uh, what, what are you going to need to do? Right? I mean, we can talk about our lives being different, but at some point, you need a plan for your life to be different. And if you're here this morning, and I'm picking on the happiness category, and I explain why in this message, but I get everybody's attention because that category matters to us. Some of us might not care about our weight. I'm too thin, I'm too fat, whatever. But you care whether you're happy or not. You care a lot about whether you're happy or not. And if you want to turn that around, what, what do you have to do to turn that around? Just, just be in a meeting where somebody mentions that and you acknowledge that, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not real happy. Well, if you're going to turn that around, you're going to have to do some things. And I take a lesson from this corporate analysis here, right? Turning around Chrysler meant one, analyzing their situation. What is going on in our company? What's, what's happening? What state are we in right now? What condition are we in, right? Let's be honest about what's working, what's not working, what's attractive, what's ugly, what's broken, right? So first thing you got to do, you got to analyze your situation. Second, you got to define your objectives. What, who are we? What kind of company are we? What are we about? What defines the things that we're going to do? What, what aspects of business do we not need to be involved with? And which ones do we need to focus on? You need to adjust your practice. And they made, they made quite a bit of adjustments in their practice. I, I can tell you right now, if you're not happy this morning, and you've been through a season of not being happy, and you're not ready to make any adjustments, well, then you're ready to just continue not being happy. I can just tell you that. Nothing's going to change. If you don't adjust, if you don't adjust something, stop thinking that if somebody else will just adjust something, I can be happy. If somebody else owns the key to your happiness besides Jesus Christ, you're in a, you're in a world of trouble. Because that person's trying to figure out how to make themselves happy. They're, they're not trying to fix your happiness. So if, if you're going to see a change, it's going to be because adjustments are going to need to be made. There were some adjustments that got made for Chrysler Corporation. When Lee Iacocca stepped in, he began to identify all the properties and assets that they owned and began to say, that's got to go, that's got to go, that's got to go. So near and dear projects, you know, there were, there were leaders and there were people that that part of the company, oh, that's me, that's who I, we've built that for 20 years. And he just came in and said that, and we're selling it tomorrow. And that thing was gone. And then this thing was gone. And that part was sold off. And that division was sold off. Thousands of employees lost their jobs. That was tough. I mean, in one swoop, one year, 8,500 employees were gone. That was a tough decision that he had to make. Then they had to make an even harder decision. It's one thing to say no to things. And I just tell you right now, it'll be, it'll be easier for you right now at the end of this year to say no to some things than it will be for you to say yes to the right things. Because right now you can make a list. If I said, what's, what's broken and what's not, what's not working right in your life? You, could, you can rattle some things off. But if I begin to say, what needs to be or what would be really good in your life at this point? You might have a harder time with that list. But for Chrysler to turn the corner, they were going to have to think about what are we going to have to do? What are we going to have to be in the future? And they began to get creative. They began to think differently about vehicles and cars and what they were making. And, they, and they, they produced a couple of cars that really changed their future. You know, one of them was the minivan, right? You guys remember, there used to not be minivans. And all of a sudden, the minivan comes along, and it, and it kind of changes the automobile landscape. And Chrysler was at the center of that. So if, if you're going to see change in your life, you're going to need to analyze where you are. You're going to need to be honest, and I hope this morning you'll be honest about where you are. You're going to need to define your objectives. What are you about? What defines your life and what you should be aiming at? You're going to need to embrace adjustments. You can't keep doing what you're doing. And then you're going to need to implement those things. And for most of us, that's where the wheel comes off. Going from idea to day-to-day, making it happen in our lives. But let me just bring this business thought into your backyard. If you thought about your own life, from a business perspective, I think I put this question in your notes. 
what, what's your business goal? What, do you, what are you after in life? And how do you measure your profit and loss, right? So at the end of the year, there's a profit loss statement that's coming to you. You making a profit? Things going good for you? How do you even determine whether things are going good? Well, if you're a business, in the business world, businesses want to make money. That's what businesses want to do. In the human being world, people want to be happy more than anything else. We all have that in common in here. We can be very, very different in here. But at the end of next week, all of us will agree, I'd I, I just like to be happy. Right? As a matter of fact, I think you'd, you'd trade your money for some happy, wouldn't you? Because ultimately, it's not money you're really after. It's what money can get for you that would make you happy is what you're really after in your life. So let's, let's stop for a moment. Annual report 2013 on the corporation of Keith is sitting on my desk. And I'm thumbing through it. If I want to cut to the chase, I want to go to the bottom line. And at the bottom line, I want to turn to the page in the column. I'm going to go to the bo- down to the bottom. I want to find out, am I happy? And I want you to ask yourself that question. Are you happy? Some of us run from that question with everything in us. Christians are in a real dilemma to answer that question because they know in theory they're supposed to be happy. But when you press Christians against the wall sometimes, and sometimes life does that, and you ask that question, you find out that they're really not happy. They have some great ideas, and they got a lofty thought about God thrown in the mix there, but they're just not happy. Not happy about my life. Do you like where your life is? Do you like your life? Anybody here wishing there was a do-over button? Or maybe just a rewind button. Maybe, maybe some of us don't want to do over the whole thing, but we'd like to rewind about four years or eight years or several months. Right, so be honest about where you are in, in your quest in that. Be honest about that because it touches your life. Here's the reality. We're all in the happiness business. It dominates us. It influences how we feel and all of our pursuits on a daily basis. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century. He was a mathematician, scientist, just genius. You know, a guy was formulating things in mathematics at 16 years old. That was freaking everybody out. And they're thinking, there's no way some 16-year-old kids come up with this. The guy just had a mind that could take in so much thought and information. He had an encounter with God when he was 31 years old that just totally changed his life. And he wrote about some interesting things. So he kind of became a philosopher as well. He says this, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The, the will never takes the least step but to this object. Now, if that's true, so this is a defining thing we're describing right now about every last one of us. The will never takes the least step but to this object. What object is that? Happiness. If I think happiness is right over there, then I will take it. But if I think happiness is over here, I don't want to go the, this way. I want to go toward that. I want to be where happiness is, whatever I think that is. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. That's an interesting thought. I mean, all in one sentence, you've got people going to war, willing to face the battles of war, the loss of life of war, and people avoiding going to war. And they both have the same motive. People living life and people taking their own life, both out of the same motive, really? Yeah. Because the person who takes his life has become so happiness depleted 
that they feel as though death is actually an upgrade in my happiness. It will actually remove the sense of unhappiness that's dominating me. So I'm actually going to move toward happiness by taking my own life. Or the person who goes to war lives at peace with their current circumstances, but, but looks at another set of circumstances and says, if I had that, I would be better off. My well-being would increase. And if I got to go to war to get it, I will go to war to get it. Now, there's some people who say, war would make me so miserable that I'd rather just stay in the condition that I'm in than go to war because that's happier for me than that is. Right? I mean, you see this. Right? We, we have different personalities in how, how we deal with things, right? Some of you guys are, are the kind of folks that if customer service for whatever company you're dealing with, you know, whatever hotel or restaurant you're at, you know, they serve you up some food and it's, it's not good. And for you, happiness is just don't mess with it. Just eat it and don't make a big deal. How many of y'all are all like that? You just would, you go ahead and eat it. You'd pay the bill. You won't make a big deal out of it. Uh, how many of you guys are calling the executive chef to get his butt out here? <laughs> right? You know, your spouse is like, honey, please, please just leave it alone. Right? For you, it's like, we're going to war. <laughs> It's worth it. I'm going to war. This meal needed to be something and it's not. Right? Everybody's motivated by the same thing. We just get after it in a little bit different of a way. William James is an American philosopher. He said, how to gain, how to keep, how to recover happiness is in fact for most men at all times the secret motive of all they do and of all they are willing to endure. So if we're thinking about making any life adjustments right now, you're end of 2013, you're starting 2014 here in this week, and you're thinking about any life adjustments, what you're looking to do in the business of Keith is I'm looking to increase my bottom line. I want to increase my happiness. So I want to make some moves that are going to increase my happiness. All right, so questions. What exactly is happiness? We all say we want to be happy. What exactly is happiness? Is there, is there just a standard sort of an idea here? I think there's a general concept we're kind of after, this well-being sense, but I don't think it's well-informed. Immanuel Kant, who was a German philosopher, said, the concept of happiness is such an indeterminate one that even though everyone wishes to attain happiness, yet he can never say definitely and consistently what it is that he really wishes and wills. And you want, so, all right, so you want to be happy. What, what exactly are you after? What exactly are you trying to experience in something called happiness? Right? Did I put a little paragraph in your thing right below that quote. Happiness is a good concept. Is that in your notes? All right. Let's look at that together. Happiness is a good concept to consider, to define. Maybe you've never done that. You just kind of, you're, you're just aiming. I just want to be happy. What, what does that mean? Well, I've never thought about it. I just, I just want to be happy. I just don't want to be happy. All right. And to be intentional about. For way too many of us, we're just hoping that happiness will just happen. Somehow, mysteriously, we will find ourselves happy. But what is happiness? What makes it operate? When does it kick in? How will I know I have it when it comes? Right, there, there are, there's a variety in our life. And so what I really wanted this morning to do for us was to install some, some wisdom in our pursuit of happiness. Wisdom-informed happiness. What is wisdom-informed happiness? Because there's a variety of life that awaits you when you walk out that door. And happiness doesn't always feel the same. It doesn't always feel the same to you, right? There's a variety of life experiences where happiness feels very different. The toddler in your supermarket cart being driven to the checkout line who gets eye of the toy or the candy right near the checkout moment has a definition for happiness. Have you experienced this? 
And whether or not you cooperate with this, I mean, I've seen some children cry at the level of somebody going through a divorce. I mean, for them, this is unhappy. You told me no. I laid eyes on that. My whole future is bound up in that ring pop. (laughs) You must give it to me. Ah, just freaking out. Have you had kids do this to you or you've been in line with kids? And then you get a little older. I can remember being a teenager and, and getting a bad haircut as a teenager. How many of you guys can remember getting a bad haircut as a teenager? I mean, I'm a guy, so I don't know what you girls were like. But, man, if, the, if, if I got it cut and it was too short back then, you didn't want your ears showing for some reason. It was like that was, you just didn't want your ears sticking out. And you thought they were like Vulcan ears or something. So you had, had to have them covered. So if ever I got a haircut and it was too, too much of my ears for sure, I, I could just launch right into depression for days over a haircut. Right? I mean, I'm grateful now. My hair's falling out, changing colors. So I'm grateful that I, I don't find my happiness in my hair at this point in life. But back then, that was a big deal. Right? Take a seven-year-old little girl and talk to her about boys. And, and you will not find that her happiness is bound up in boys. She's seven. As a matter of fact, boys are a little icky. Little germ-infested creatures who just have interest in the wrong stuff. Just fast forward now to a 37-year-old girl. And for her, not having boys in her life is a source of loneliness and unhappiness in her life. And I've got a... Got a six-year-old boy in my house, and uh, you know he's 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 pretty simple socially. If he's if he knows where mom is, as long as mom's in the building, everything's happy. And whatever mom and dad are doing, that's good for me. You know, so you want to go off and do something? No, I'm good. He just he'll stay home. That's his little world. Now, if you fast forward, most kids when they get to be about sixteen, all of a sudden the happy people and the happy locations are somewhere else. If <laughs> you've discovered this, uh, that you used to be quite happy with me, and all of a sudden now I'm just like, I'm not a source of happiness, am I? It's like, can I have somebody over? You know, you yeah, you got like a bunch of people over. We live with a bunch of people. There's like a tribe here, but I, I can't see any of you. I just need to have a friend over or I need to go to a friend, right? At some point, your happiness quotient changes, doesn't it? So it's a fickle thing that's going on. And you might actually be experiencing happiness in some categories that you just don't have categories for us. So let me install some categories for happiness this morning. How about something called Xbox happiness? I know what Xbox happiness is. If you own an Xbox or your children own an Xbox or you're below the age of 35, you know what an Xbox is and you probably need to stop playing it for goodness sake. You're 35. But there's, there's a form of happiness in playing your world-dominating and power-controlling Xbox game. Right, you sit down, and, and there is it's it, it's neurotransmitter stimulus happiness. It's addictive. It's like there's this power in this, and I do this, and people move, and they shoot stuff, and things blow up, and people catch passes, and I've got power. And you just play this. I was just talking to some guys the other night about playing Xbox when they were in college. And they'd say they'd get together. Next thing you know, it was 4 a.m. You know, just, we just got together, ate dinner, uh, and played for hours and hours. Like the sun is coming up. Right? I can remember this experience. You know, back when I was in college, they didn't have Xbox. If you wanted to play a video game when I was in college, you had to go find an arcade. Y'all remember what an arcade is? A few of y'all remember what arcades are. You had to go to an arcade. So I would, I would have this experience. I'd, you know, I'd study and I'd prepare for final exams and, get to the last one. I take my last final exam at LSU and, and I was prepared. As soon as that was over with, I, I was loaded up with quarters <laughs> in my backpack, in my pockets. I had just uh, an um, umpteen amounts of quarters and I would go to the, uh, the student center and I would play Donkey Kong for hours, <laughs> hours, right? Some of you Donkey Kong fans, you know where it's at. There you go, baby. 
Maybe a little Pac-Man on the side. Pac-Man was old by then. So I was, you know, Donkey Kong was new and kicking. But I, would, I, could, I could remember just being absorbed in just the neurotransmitter moments. You know, you're just, you're just lost in this world. Right? For those of you right now who are all acting like, you know, you Xbox people are, are kind of like weird. Facebook is a similar thing. Right? It's just this neurotransmitter, and instead, you don't get to control galaxies. You just get to stare at people doing nebulous stuff in your own backyard. But okay, if that's what you're into, go ahead. Go ahead. Right? If you're just thumbing and looking, and hours go by. Right? The kids don't have dinner prepared. Uh, your husband's walking in the door. Where have you been? Been trapped in face world. Right? Oh, neurotransmitter. But I can also remember this, though. I'm finished, you know, hours of Donkey Kong. I actually remember this, and I don't have much of a memory of anything anymore. Backpack on, walking across the campus, and this strange feeling of, like, I'd eaten too much cotton candy. It was this weird sense of emptiness in me in that moment that I had just wasted a lot of time because I had played for hours. Right? Any of you Xbox guys, you just got sucked in. Hours later, you kind of de-hook and whew, neurotransmitters get set to the side and then you go walk off and, and it just, does it come on you like a wave? Like, oh my gosh, I just wasted a lot of time. Right? That's how I would feel. So, but there is a sense of sort of pleasure in that moment. There are things that we do that kind of have that addictive enjoyment that kind of make you feel happy in that moment. What's interesting, some of those things, they have a feeling of happiness for a moment, but they're, they're pleasure oriented without reward. So they're, they're an aspect of feeling happy, but they lack something else that's more meaningful to us, right? It was interesting. I'm reading a, a book on happiness by a guy named Darren McMahon, to study of the history of the pursuit of happiness. And so he's writing about the Greeks back in the 5th century, and he says, happiness might be hard to come by, but fleeting pleasures were less difficult to find. For all their talk of suffering, the Greeks knew how to enjoy themselves. If you go back and you read Greek uh, history, these guys, I mean, they were a giant fraternity system. And so all the overindulgent and excessiveness that you can think of taking place on a college campus in the fraternity world. Just pick that up and transport it to the Greeks. That's why we get the Greek system. This is those guys, whether it was sexual, whether it was drinking, whether it was part of, they just created an indulging, pleasure-oriented world. But here's the thing. Remember, pleasure, and I think that's well said, pleasure is more easily accessible than real happiness is. Because you know this. You've reached for pleasure, and it was pleasurable. And you reached again and again and again, and it was pleasurable. I mean, this is why you overeat. This is why you have lust issues. Because it's pleasurable, but it lacks a long-term sense of reward to it, so it can't make you happy. Because you want something more when you say, am I happy right now? You want something more than a highlight reel of all the cool Xbox games you played in the last year. That doesn't feel meaningful enough to you. Well, how about this kind of happiness? How about hard work happiness? Just working hard, accomplishing something, happiness. You spent yourself, took your time, spent your energy, did something you didn't feel like doing, but you accomplished something at the end. When I finished a college semester, I I studied and I worked hard to get good grades. That mattered to me. And so I, I, I enjoyed the day of seeing the produce of that. If I looked at my report card and I, I saw A's and a couple of B's, uh, that was a sense of reward. That was, that was an accomplishment happiness, but it was accompanied by a lot of moments that didn't feel real happy. A lot of moments on weekends where I was studying and I wasn't doing something with friends. A lot of moments where it was up late cramming for a test to make sure I understood this thing so I could, I could take that test or finish that paper and do well on that. While other people were, were playing ball or were going and hanging out or were playing some game somewhere. There was a cost for me, but yet later on, that hard work, that sense of accomplishment... It was a source of pleasure. It was a source of happiness in life. So there's hard work happiness. There's vacation happiness. Right? Some of these we just love better than others, don't we? 
I mean, vacation happiness. Don't you just love vacation happiness? I mean, I was I'd telling my wife, I'd written her a card for Christmas, and one of the highlights of 2013 for me was the time she and I got to spend together in California. Just And we were so blessed by you guys to afford us that unique opportunity. And uniquely had the guys uh, leading forced us into this mold where, you know, you have to, you have to do this by this date and it can only, cause I, I'd have, I'd have instantly taken my kids with me cause I just, we just love to do vacation stuff when we can. Uh, but no, it's just you and your wife. And so that was just this unique opportunity for us to be together where there was no schedule, no demands, didn't have to be somewhere, didn't have to return any emails, arrange a meeting, prepare for meetings, just, I mean, our biggest decision somewhere, we just wake up and just say, so, where you want to eat? You know, that's just vacation happiness, you know? You're just sights and sounds and rides and whatever it is that you like to do. You get to enjoy that. And that's a good thing. That's a good, that's a good happiness. Or how about no responsibility happiness? Right? There, there's a part of us that just likes not, not having any expectations on us. Not having to be responsible for something. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of fear in this category when you begin to be responsible for things. So you can, you can actually feel like, well, you know, if I can shed that sense of expectation that other, others have of me in this category, I, I can feel more comfortable with me and therefore I'll be happier. Right? So I want to avoid challenging things and I want to avoid settings that are threatening to me. I want to avoid taking on a responsibility that sticks me in front of people. I, I, don't, I want to avoid that. Because I, I, don't, I don't want to fail. I don't want to goof up. Right? I, don't, I don't want to get known that I'm really not all that good at that. You know, the guy who's well-dressed and stands at the edge of the meeting and looks like he's something, he can feel happy about that. But he doesn't want to volunteer to actually do anything because if he does, he'll get discovered that, oh, he dresses well, but he's not all that impressive. And some of us know that. We know, hey, I, I can dress the part, but I don't know if I can play the part. And so I don't know if I want to step out into that. I don't know if I want to take that chance. I don't know if I want to pursue a relationship. I don't know if I want to get married. I don't know if I want to take that class. I don't know if I want to take that job because I could fail at it. And so even though it would pay you more and it would be a better career move for you, I feel safe right here because I know what to do with this job, even though this is not the greatest of jobs for me. But I'm going to stay right here because safety makes me feel happy. Right? Do you understand why you do these things? So there's a, a no responsibility happiness, but there's also a high responsibility happiness. Right, if you're a parent here, you've stepped into the world of taking on responsibility for other people in your life. If you work in the business world and you're a manager and you went from just being you doing your job to now I'm responsible for other people who do their job and I've got to help them. I've got to inspire them. I've got to relate to them. Or maybe you're an owner, you're a business owner. And it's interesting. I, I interact with some of you guys who are business owners and some of your employees who work for you and they have a very different view about life and the job and see for you when 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 business kind of slows up you feel that you're the owner you feel the responsibility and the stress of how do we make the ends meet how do we survive through this lean period am i we're gonna have to lay guys off i mean how do i keep paying them how do we pay insurance and all the costs that go into what you're doing well you know the, the guy who doesn't take on any of that responsibility he doesn't have any of those headaches He's just doing his job. It's just him. You know, you're in a church. You can be a person who just comes to church. Come to church, hear some messages. Come to church, go to a small group. But then there are guys who are going to step up and take responsibility for the small group. And there are pastors who are going to step up and take responsibility for the church. And that high responsibility brings with it a different level of involvement, a different level of stress, different level of activity in people's lives that, that feel like they're, they're waiting on you. They're depending on you. You can't just turn your back, do your own thing, because you have to lead the meeting on Tuesday night. And, and you want it to be an impacting meeting, so you need to study and pray and get around God. It's going to take time for you to do that. Time away from this activity that you'd like to do, and time away from that activity that you'd like to do. But how many of you guys know, if you have ever taken on responsibility for other people, 
there's a form of happiness in that too. It makes, your, it makes your life inform you that what you do matters. What you've done with your life has been meaningful. What you've sown into your children. All the sacrifices you've made. Any guys ever look at those reports of, you know, how much it takes to raise a child these days from zero to 20? Ever see the, the dollar amounts on those? Listen, I, uh, no one shared those with me. Uh, they're, they're these astronomical figures. And, you know, when you start playing the game, you start realizing, okay, they're a little overblown. But basically, your, your kids do take everything from you. They do. Uh, but there's a sense of, yeah, and that's a good thing in your life. You guys know, if you've raised kids, you know that there's a sense of, of happiness in your soul about what you were able to be to your children and how you imparted to them and you cared for them. And you led them into life and you poured into them. Right? Just, there's happiness in these categories. There's self-indulgent happiness. This is, this is why it's hard not to overeat. This is why it's uh, a challenge to avoid pornography. This is why it's difficult to not uh, oversleep or become lazy and develop lazy tendencies. And everybody's got lazy tendencies. Let me just tell you, everybody's got lazy tendencies in some aspect of their life. It may not be that you sleep too much. But there's something in your life that you just don't like to expend the energy to do that. So therefore, you just don't expend the energy to do that. And that's a pretty important thing. Why do you do that? Well, because the laziness, the not doing it feels better than the doing it. I feel better and I feel happier when I don't do it. Then I feel guilty for not doing it. But apparently I don't feel so bad about my guilt. That I start doing it because <laughs> I feel better and happier by not doing it. Sorry, it's just the way it works. <laughs> There's self-sacrificing happiness. On the other end of just absorbing and taking and absorbing and taking, there is the giving away of your life. Serving others, serving in the church. Which, which by the way, I, I, I don't want to embarrass these, these folks, but, but we, and we have, we've had a busy month around here in the month of December uh, and going back into November, uh, four weddings, late November, all the way through December, uh, cantatas, and, and just a lot of activity going on. And, and what was an overwhelming blessing to me was to interact with the, the parents of these families who were getting married and to hear the emotion in their voices as they were observing the people who were serving them volunteers in the church who we know December is a busy month for you guys, which by the way, we will never let anybody do a December wedding ever again. Just wanted to put that asterisk at the bottom. Um, but the folks who served here, uh, there's an aspect of, of well-being that comes from giving your life away to others. I saw, I saw guys at multiple weddings knowing, knowing they had a lot going on in their lives. And they were here preparing food and setting things up and decorating for hours and serving food at the receptions. They were here giving their life away for others. And, and, and I, I know that they heard appreciation from that. Let me just push back into your life the appreciation that I was able to hear from others who they were so blessed, uh, choking back tears, blessed by how much the church cared for them in this season. And for those of you who serve in those kinds of ways, you know it costs you something to do that. It's not convenient. It's not easy. It's not even something that may be your favorite thing to do. But there's a sense in your own soul that it's, that it's good. It's right. And there's a sense of reward built into that. Right, so let me just throw all that into your plate and say, listen, as you think about happiness and you think about what is it that you're aiming at, do you understand happiness doesn't feel the same all the time? The things that, that might be the most rewarding sense of true happiness in your soul might be the things that you're seeking to avoid the most. And the things that come easiest, the ones that are quick trip to the pleasure counter, might be the things that never seem to push you over the edge of feeling this sense of contentment and meaningfulness in your own soul. And so here's my, 
definition for you. What is happiness? Happiness is made up of contentment, meaningful existence, big picture joy, non-overlocalized involvement, a connection to permanence, an appropriate level of selfless living, a regular practice of sacrifice, an embrace of challenge, failure, taking risks, suffering losses, enduring pain, participating in what is ultimate. So if you want to be sitting at the end of a year feeling like, you know, am I happy? Your happiness is going to have that kind of stuff in it. And listen, if you're a Christian, right, in this room, not everybody's a Christian here. If you're a Christian, then there's, there's something even more ultimate that defines your happiness. There's something even bigger in your, in your life and in your activities that defines your happiness. If you're, if you're not a Christian, then ultimately, what governs, what sits like an umbrella over your life, over, over the things that you'll do in your life to find happiness? Well, I mean, it, it, it can be the way you relate to people. Maybe that's the umbrella. Do I fit in? Do people like me? Do they esteem me? Do they have respect for me? Do they find me attractive? And your happiness is, is on the seesaw of those factors. You get in a place where you're feeling appreciated and affirmed and people think you're attractive, you feel good about yourself. And you get in a setting where those things are not happening or you're getting older and everything's starting to sag and you don't quite look the same way. All of a sudden, your happiness is starting to drain out of the drain, isn't it? Because the umbrella of your happiness was bound up in, in those things. It, it could be something your culture's imposed on you. You know, money and status. What kind of car do you drive? What kind of neighborhood do you live in? How's your house compared to other people's houses? Remember, even in the Bible, Abraham, Jacob sat under a dominating cultural idea about ultimate happiness, and it had to do with children. had to do with whether they had sons or not. You hear of all that Abraham had. He was a wealthy man. He was a powerful man, and he had God. And he was still scratching his head and begging for an heir. But what about an heir, Lord? What, what, what will I do without an heir? Right, that was the ultimate thing in his life. Right, Jacob's wives. Why, you know, why do they want to provide sons for this man? Because it gives me status in his eyes. So the, the husband became the controlling, dominating factor in her life. Now listen, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you have to do this. You have to zoom out. You have to back away from your own feet, your own history, your own personality, your own personal preferences, your own family, your own desire to bring comfort to them and provide safety and direction for them. You've got to back out into an umbrella that sits under the ultimate purposes of God to which all those things are just a part of something bigger in your life. So you can't begin to write the story about your own happiness. Well, I've always had a talent with this. I've always been creative and so artistic. And so so art, is, is, is art the umbrella you sit under then? For a Christian, that's not the umbrella you sit under. It's, it's an element that sits under another umbrella. It's a higher call that God has, a higher purpose. And it has to do with how you're going to look at your whole life. You remember I quoted from a guy named Solon the wise sage who tried to answer King Croesus' question about whether or not he's the happiest man in all the world with all of his wealth and his power and his influence. Am I the happiest man in the world? Solon said, Croesus, to me it's clear that you are very rich and it's clear that you are the king of many men. But the thing that you ask me, I cannot say of yet until I hear that you have brought your life to an end well. Until your life is at its end, only then are you going to find out, am I really happy? Did I really live a life that had those kinds of qualities of happiness? All right, so let me just take this last five minutes and give you the Apostle Paul's perspective on happiness. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Here's Paul at the end of his life. And here's what he has to say. 
He's transitioning. We're transitioning to a new year. He's about to transition to a new address of existence in heaven. Verse 6. He says to Timothy, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And if you, if you read this from Paul's life, would, would you surmise that Paul was a happy man? He's at the close of his life. He's in a place where he can look back and can assess his happiness. Would you conclude that Paul would be a man saying, it is well with my soul? I think I would. But I'd have to be really careful about how he came to experience happiness. You do remember Paul's life, right? Paul, you sure you don't want to press a redo button here? (laughs) I mean, some of your story isn't all that comfortable or pleasant. You really feel like you're happy. Well, for Paul, verse 7, a happy life means fighting a good fight. Fighting a good fight. Not Not just any fight. Everybody in here is fighting for something. But I can't say all of us are fighting a good fight. Fighting for ultimately what matters the most. Listen, I know some of us are, are kind of freaked out as to you know, whether or not you're going to actually get to the next level of Candy Crush. I know that's a concern. And getting there has its own sense of you know, euphoria. But I don't think that qualifies for a good fight. I have fought the good Candy Crush fight. <laughs> I think there's more significant stuff. So it matters what you fight. And, and please notice that in the quest for happiness... Life is a fight. Punches get thrown in a fight. Staggering backwards, reeling, falling back into the corner in between rounds and then getting up again and engaging the fight once more. That was Paul's life. Real punches, real threats. Remember, we studied about Paul, Acts chapter 16. Paul wants to go back to the churches in the cities that beat him, left him for dead, stoned him. Derb and Lystra and Iconium, remember the experiences that Paul had there? And he wants to go back there. So he's in a fight, and in between rounds, he goes right back in to that fight again. See, there's something meaningful happy about doing that. So I know in in the quick sense of pleasure mode, that's not real happy. But at the end of your life, when you've gotten back up and you've gone back into the fight over and over again for what ultimately matters, then let me ask you at the end of your life, did you live a happy life? And you'll answer it very differently. A happy life means finishing the race. I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Do you you guys know that some of the races God has you in are marathon races? And there's only a few of us in this room who like to run marathons. The rest of us are in our right mind. <laughs> but you ever talk to somebody who loves, like, loves a marathon? It's, it's a strange encounter. Because they're telling you this story with a smile on their face and this great sense of accomplishment that they ran 26 miles. 26 miles. <laughs> you know, in my mind, I'm thinking I wouldn't ride a bike 26 miles. I get impatient driving 26 miles. You ran 26 miles, really ran the whole way in. I trained for months and, and they're all happy about it. And that's how Paul is. And if you've ever run, I did, I did run some distance in, in high school. And, you know, when you're when your legs are cramping and your side starts to hurt and you're trying to find that, that hatch on the inside, it's like, is there a handle here? I can just pull this rib out to make it stop doing this. All right, that's Paul running this race because God's got him in 
this marathon of a race. And, and listen, you may not be an apostle running an apostle's race, but you got your own marathons that God's calling you run to the end with it. Run to the end in serving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't just, don't just do that when you were younger and you thought you had more energy. Run your marathon of your marriage to the end. Run it to the end. And there are moments when it hurts and you're out of gas and you want to quit. But it's God giving you this marathon. Run it to the end. You want to you live a happy life? Don't just live for a moment. Live for what's going to matter down there at the end when Christus wants to get his answers. And Paul can say at the end of his life, I've run the race. It was not an easy race, right? Remember Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, describing his experience with these various ministries? He said, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. This, this is a soul that's in good shape. This is a happy soul. A soul that learned to transfer its hope to God. If you've lived your life and you've never had that broken in you where you stopped hoping in people, in money, in status, in success, in your health, in the temporary things of this earth, if you've never transferred that hope to God, then you're not sitting here today able to say, I'm quite happy with my life. A happy life means keeping the faith all the way to the end. Trusting, hoping, believing. Right? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his soul? A happy life means having significant categories of deferred gratification. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Oh, this does not play well for Americans, does it? We don't, we don't want any form of deferred gratification. In the grand scheme of trying to be happy people, and I know we're all in the business of being happy, being wise and being happy means some of your happiness is bound up in something you cannot have right now, but you hope to have later. And you have confidence that you will have it later. Right? This is, this is kind of where this series will go in the end when we talk about fixing your happiness by fixing your gaze. How many of you right now, if you'd say, hey, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not Joe happy this morning, and recently I haven't been. How many of you right now would say that the awareness of the crown of righteousness that awaits you is informing in any way at all your happiness today? It is a crown laid up. It's not one that he can go pull out of his 401k and cash in. He can't have it right now. He can't put his hands on it, melt it down, sell the gold, and buy something fun. It's a crown of righteousness that God has preserved, laid up later for you. You don't get to have it now. But for Paul, it was a source of happiness. It was his ability to say, my life is a good life because laid up for me. What's waiting for me is significant and it informs me now. And so my happiness should be informed by not just what I have and what I can have immediately, but what I will have one day in God's great plan. And the last one that he mentions, a happy life means deeply loving and longing for the person of God. This might be our greatest tragedy of all. All who have loved his appearing... Does, does that form a sense of your happiness today? The loving of the appearing of God, the being face to face with him. One day that's coming and I'm assured of that and I'm anticipating that. Like I, I don't, listen, I know right now if some of you have a Disney vacation planned in the next month, there is a sense of, of 
you know, a whole happiness going on right now, right? God, we've got an event coming. We've got something going on besides boring normal. <clears throat> we're going we're gonna to be doing the Disney thing. You're probably calling people. You've got a plan going on right now, right? Do we have a longing for God that anticipates one day I'm going to be face to face with the one I love the most? Right, that, that should inform this right now. Right, so here, here's, here's the one thing I wanted to do, and I'm going <clears> to <throat> close, and Eric, you can come back up. Here's, here's the one thing I want to do. I wanted to go in a different direction, but I'll try and pick up on some of that next week. <clears throat> every one of us here, every one of us here are in the business of happiness. Your business is open 24-7. Even when you're sleeping, you're trying to get some happiness. Sweet dreams, right? I mean, you want to be happy when you sleep. But we, do we even know what we're aiming at? Have we confused cotton candy happiness for what we're really after? Because cotton candy tastes really good until your stomach feels really empty later. And so it's a strange happiness. It's a, it's a, it's a taste bud happiness and a stomach belly ache. And there's a lot in life that's that way. And yet if we're not careful, we don't put the two of them together and say, hey, I want pleasures that are deeply satisfying. I want to make decisions about enjoyment in the right now that have to do with meaningful reward later. I want to be a part of accomplishing something like the Apostle Paul was that costs me dearly, challenges me, forces me to take risks, but in the end, it's going to mean something that I was a part of that. And knowing that now makes me participate in a way that even has its own form of happiness. I believe God's got big things for his church. And I believe God's got big things for us as a church. And this, I'm starting at this location to get to where I feel like God wants to communicate with us. And it'll take us a few weeks to get there. But can I just tell you why I'm starting here? I'm starting here because this is where we live. We live in the category of pursuing happiness. And some of us do it in the most unwise ways. So I hope if nothing else today, wisdom invaded our pursuit of happiness. That we became aware that happiness is not just this fleeting temporary pleasure It's something deeper than that. It's more meaningful than that. It's longer lasting than that. It has a bigger umbrella that it sits under. But here's what I want to leave you with. And I just want you to be vulnerable to God right now. And so you can just close your eyes and let's let's welcome the Holy Spirit just to speak our names personally and speak to us. It's December the 29th. 2013, another year coming to a close and a new year about to dawn. Are you happy? Are you happy with your life? Is there an aroma of satisfying contentment, joy-filled happiness about you? Or are there other more pressing aromas, fear and complaining, criticism, despair? Just be honest with God. But if anything's going to ever change, if 2014 holds any blessing for you, you're going to have to analyze where you're really at. So if, if, if you're just not happy, you're going to need to tell God this morning, God, I'm not happy. Or I'm having fleeting moments of happiness. Something needs to get fixed.
Well, Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you let this morning be a starting point for much deeper work, Lord? You, You don't want a people who use cool words, but when you ask them if they're happy in their heart, they really would say, I'm not, not happy with my marriage not happy with how I feel about my life. I'm not happy with what I've accomplished. I'm not happy with what I'm doing. I'm not happy with my church. I'm not happy. Lord, bring the reality of all that you've purchased. Lord, when we looked at this light of your son coming to the earth, increasing the nation and bringing them rejoicing and the joy is with the gladness of the harvest. Lord, you wanted to have an impact on our happiness. So, Lord, I pray that this morning you would awaken us. You would disturb us. You would move us from these places. You would inform our pursuit of happiness with wisdom. And you would lead us into the life that produces the happiness that every one of us are after. Lord, help us do that for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Hey, don't forget... Small group registration. You guys can can jump into that on your way out today. So take care of that this week so you don't forget for next week. Bless you guys. Have a happy new year. Hopefully we'll see you back Wednesday night. Testimony service here Wednesday night. Is that right? I'm sorry, Tuesday night. Tuesday night. Thank you. Thank you for looking puzzled.